Hey, everybody. Merry Christmas. So good to see you all. Uh, for Christmas Sunday, we have one of those weird years this year where uh, Christmas falls on a Sunday. Last time that happened, seven years ago, it was my first year pastoring. So I made everybody come to church on Christmas. <laughs> I've learned some things in the last seven years. So anyway, it's really good to have you all here with us today. I'm a dad of three kids now, and I feel like there is something really magical about being a dad at Christmas. Like each year, I lean into it just a little bit more. You know, I add a new tradition. Sometimes they're made up. You know, we add a few more Christmas lights to the house, or we're willing to go up on higher peaks of the house for really no reason. Uh, we, add, you know, get a new cheesy Christmas sweater. I find that I'm identifying with dads way more in Christmas movies. Like, I cannot watch 8-Bit Christmas without crying at the end. Also, side note, if you watch The Preacher's Wife, the bad guy is the pastor. That guy's the best pastor in the history of the world. You guys should go watch it again. Anyway. I feel like I'm on a trajectory where I'm like five years out from going full Clark Griswold. Now, as parents, we feel the tension of wanting to embrace and indulge in all of the fun festivities of the Christmas season, while also feeling this like need to keep our kids anchored to the true, real, and deep meaning of Christmas. Now, I remember, I, I, grew, I grew up as a church kid, so... I, I've lived in this tension my whole life. And I remember as a kid staring at a pile of, of wrapped presents right in front of me on Christmas morning, eager to tear into them, to open up the stockings, to go for it. And my mom and dad saying, hold on, we're going to read the Christmas story first. And, and I would just sit there like fidgeting and dying barely listening to them. And here I am, like 30 years later, I am a pastor. I am a professional Christian. I get paid to read and study the Bible. And yet every time I come to Luke chapter 2, I start to get shaky and nervous, like some Pavlovian classical conditioning response. If you want your children to pay attention to what you are reading from the Bible, don't put a wrapped present right in front of them while you talk about what happened while Quirinius was the governor. They just don't care. And yet, I am a dad, and I do the exact same thing to my children. I subject them to the exact same torture. It is, by definition, the sins of the father being returned to the third and fourth generation. <laughs> now, in all of the warm sentimentality of this season, it's easy for us to paper over Jesus' birth with the soft glow of American Christmas, to essentially put a filter on the nativity scene. But the story that Carly just read to us is anything but peaceful and warm. Each year I feel like I kind of get a, a, a new perspective on the Christmas story. And this year I feel like I'm, I'm really seeing it through the eyes of Mary. This young teenage girl whose life was turned upside down in an instant. And the greeting card version, it was just up, the greeting card sort of image of the Annunciation is of this teenage Mary who's filled with wonder and peace and excitement at the angel's uh, arrival. But that isn't how Luke tells the story at all. He says that Mary was greatly troubled, that she was afraid at the angel's words, that even as the angel gives her this announcement, she had objection, obje objections, saying, I'm a virgin. I can't, I can't be pregnant. 
I can't get pregnant. I'm not married. This is not a great situation for me. A surprise pregnancy would be a shock to anyone, regardless of their life circumstances. Carly and I, as we were sort of uh, meditating on this passage, we were talking it through together, and we were just sort of imagining what it would feel like for us to be surprised with, uh, you know, another pregnancy. And we have every advantage in life. We have a house. We have health insurance. We have a family that would help and support us. We have a minivan. We have more than enough seats to add another child. And yet, it would be very scary for us to, to receive the news of being surprised with a fourth kid. Many of you in this room have had that experience of suddenly having the news that another child or maybe your first child is, is imminent, the experience of an unplanned pregnancy. Some of you in this room were an unplanned pregnancy, like my brother Jacob. <laughs> And yet, and yet, and we're glad you're here, buddy. We're really glad you're here. We love you. The world is better with you here. Yet, Mary didn't have every advantage. In the tight-knit Jewish community that she lived in, in the first century, this news could not have been welcome for her. Mary was betrothed. She was engaged, which means that for her to be pregnant out of wedlock would mean much worse, actually, than her just, you know, simply being, like, considered a young floozy in the first century. She would actually be considered an adulteress, and it would be worthy of being stoned to death. But the angel, he points her beyond her circumstances to the significance of the child that she was pregnant with. The, the angel doesn't linger long in her fear. Instead, he says, no, this kid, he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high, and his kingdom will never end. You see, there was great joy in the announcement that Mary was receiving, the hope of a coming Messiah finally arriving to make things new. And this is what happens when God is doing something new. There is a commingling of great joy and pain. The birth of something significant always involves some discomfort some fear, even some pain. And for Mary, this pain of this announcement would, act, would be significant and it would be lifelong. As soon as Mary receives this news, she packs up her bag, she rushes to her cousin Elizabeth's house, an older cousin of hers, uh, uh, to, to share the story of her miraculous pregnancy. The one person in the world who could actually identify and empathize with her as, as Elizabeth was in, at that time also miraculously pregnant. And Elizabeth re receives this news from Mary and she believes her and she celebrates with her. And yet the two of these women could not have had different, ex more different experiences in their pregnancies. For, for Elizabeth, the surrounding village marvels at her healed womb, even as Mary is wearing looser and baggier clothing to hide the shame of her own miracle. When John the Baptist is born, there's celebration, gifts from relatives, a, a chorus of, of rejoicing at the birth of another Jewish male. In fact, there was a miracle of speech restored to, to Zechariah at that moment. God did something miraculous. Let's all celebrate together. While Mary, on the other hand, dealt with nine months of awkward explanations, the underlying scent of scandal of an unwed pregnant girl desperately hiding her stretched out belly. 
And six months after Elizabeth gives birth, Mary endures a long journey to a village where she doesn't know anyone, and she gives birth in a stable. No midwives, no celebrating, no tambourines, no relatives. The only witnesses were barnyard animals and some shepherds. Perhaps the reason that Joseph brought her with him on this journey to Bethlehem, she didn't legally need to go with him, but perhaps he brought her along just to spare her the shame of childbirth in her own village. And after all of that, she would take her son to be dedicated in the temple, only then to receive a word of prophecy from a man named Simeon that, yes, this child is salvation for all people. Yes, this child, he is the Messiah, but also The life of this child is going to end with your soul being pierced by a sword. She would raise this son only to see him rejected and betrayed and wrongfully accused and murdered by the state. The pain of the announcement would follow her all of her life. And yet, in the pain of the announcement that she was receiving from the angel, Mary was humble and obedient. And her response was, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She understands that this announcement comes with two edges. Yes, fear and shame and great pain, but also hope and joy. With the pain, there was joy. There was the celebration of being favored by God to be the mother of Jesus, to be the mother of the Messiah. She would watch her son grow and live this sinless life. Parents, any parents here want to see what it would look like to raise a sinless child? (laughs) Miracle of miracles. She would see the anointing on him, even from his youth, as teachers of the law marvel at his wisdom. She would see him live humbly, caring for the poor, healing the sick, preaching the good news that God's kingdom had arrived with him and that all things were being made new. She would experience the joy of seeing her son resurrected from the dead and receiving everlasting life through his sacrificial death. For Mary, there would be great pain, but there would be great joy. The commingling of joy and pain is exactly the space that God calls each of us to live our lives in. It's the place of growth and expansion, that nothing is significant is birth without pain. And so for Mary, as the Christ child developed in her womb, her love for this son grew and grew. And every mother knows this feeling. Every morning of nausea, every pinched nerve, every labor pain, all of it is endured in love, knowing that the pain will bring forth great joy. And we know that the same heart was in Jesus. One might say that though he was full of the spirit from the womb, that the DNA that he shared with his mother prepared Jesus for a life of loving and joyful pain. So much so that the night before Jesus goes to the cross to pay for the sins of the world, while he was wrestling in a garden with the shame and the pain that awaited him the next day, Jesus mirrored the prayer of his mother. Mary said it this way, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Jesus said it like this, yet not my will, but yours be done. Where did Jesus learn this kind of submission? I think that he learned it from his mother. I think that it was in him from the womb of Mary. And in Hebrews 12, we read that, we read this, that for the joy set before him, 
Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame. Or in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16, we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How could Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him of redeeming his people. How could God give up his one and only son? Because of his love for all people. Joy and pain. Sacrifice and love. And the pain that Jesus suffered was for the joy that was set before him. And the shame that Mary was willing to endure was for the hope of God's coming kingdom. A kingdom that would bring rulers down from their thrones and would send the rich away empty, but would also lift up the humble and fill the hungry. And so Mary, she glorifies in the Lord at the announcement of the angel. Her spirit rejoices in her Savior because he has seen her humble status, and yet he chose her, the lowly and the poor and the humble, to be his servant. She, she rejoices and glorifies the Lord because he has looked past the powerful and the wealthy and those who have more than enough in order to lift her up in his love. His love reaches to her, even her in her humble estate. And that's the story of Christmas. Advent is the mission that flows from God's love. That Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection all flow out of the love of the Father. God's love, it reaches to the depths. It finds those who seem farthest from God because his love is for all people. Could it be that Jesus was born in a stable instead of a palace just so that we would sense that there is no place God would not descend to to reach us? In his book, Secrets in the Dark, Frederick Buechner a writer who passed away this year, he wrote one of my favorite Christmassy quotes. He says this, those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe, that there is no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong and just where we feel or, and just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. There are no depths Jesus isn't willing to go to in order to save us. No one here is beyond the reach of his love and his rescue. The love of the Father compelled him to give his one and only Son. The love of Jesus compelled him to endure the cross. The love and the joy of Mary sustained her even in times of great pain. And this love today reaches toward you and me. And so here we are today, hearing the gospel message again, not from an angel, but from a dorky preacher. And this gospel message, it calls each one of us to respond again like Mary did. May your word to me be fulfilled. 
And the word for each of us that we all long to have fulfilled is this. Can God really love me too? Can I be one like Mary on whom his favor rests? In John 15, we read these words from Jesus. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. There is perhaps no greater invitation in the universe than this. That the love that the Father lavishes on Jesus is being extended to us. It's being poured out on us. And all we have to do is just rest and receive it. This is an offer that is way better than self-help or self-esteem. This is more than therapeutic religion. This is an invitation to a relationship with God that is close, that is intimate. And the life that God, that each, that, sorry, excuse me, the life that God calls each one of us into is one that learns how to slow down, to resist the demands of busyness, to lean into the presence of God. It's in the quiet hours where we notice his presence, where we are reminded of his love, where we hear his voice as a gentle whisper calling out to each one of us. Henry Nouwen wrote this. He said, every time you listen with great attentiveness to the voice that calls you the beloved, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear that voice longer and more deeply. It is like discovering a well in the desert. Once you have touched wet ground, you want to dig deeper. And so this week, amid all of the festivities, the bustle, the hosting preparation, can we make time to be still and to receive the Father's love, to quiet our souls long enough to hear the voice that calls us the beloved. If you're here this morning and you're perhaps new, perhaps you were invited by a friend, perhaps you were dragged here by your mom, we're glad you're here. And if you've never considered the person of Jesus, today his love is reaching to you, inviting you to come and taste and see that your longings can be fulfilled in him. The deepest longing that is in each and every single one of us is a desire to be loved and to love. And the one who created you desires to pour out his love on you and to be loved by you in, re in return. And all you have to do is respond to his love. It's more than intellectually affirming something. It's more than just going, saying a prayer real quick to get a stamp of approval. It's a response of love and worship. It's confessing that he is Lord and that I am not. Jesus' brother James writes it this way. He says that if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And so if you would like to make a decision today to follow Jesus, I would love to pray with you after the service. Please do not leave here today without taking that step. But as we get ready to transition into a time of singing, followed by delicious cookies together, um, first we're going to come to the table of communion. So if you have not yet grabbed your elements of communion, go ahead and come on up and grab some. We have uh, matzah and uh, juice right here. 